I am calling this a prophecy overview. So we've done prophecy updates, we've talked about prophecy, we're in a book of Ezekiel, so it's pretty much prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. But this is an overview of prophecy. This is foundational, it's absolutely critical, and our government has never read this, I'm convinced. (laughs) Anyone who don't know much about history, especially in the Middle East, would have to look at what's going on right now and just say, I don't get it. Why can't these people just get along? What is the deal? And 12 years ago, as you all know, this day, 12 years ago, the Middle East morass landed on the American shores in a way that that stunned our entire country, something that no one saw coming, no one expected, though perhaps we should have. The heinous attacks on September 11th. I don't need to remind you all that 2,977 American civilians were killed in that attack. When the Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four airplanes, flying two of them into the World Trade Center, one of them into the Pentagon. Then, of course, the fourth airplane, Flight 93, some of the passengers on board got word through cell phone contact of what was really going on and downed that plane in a quiet field in Shanksville, or just outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Since that time, over the last decade, more airtime has been spent, minute by minute, in the media... More effort and energy has been spent by the United States, by the European Union, by the United Nations on the mountainous mess in the Middle East than on any other single thing in the world. December of 2010, we saw what uh, politicians and prognosticators called the Arab Spring. And here we are three years later and the Arab Spring has been nothing but a long, hot summer. The tumult in Tahrir Square in Egypt resulted in the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. Since toppled by the Egyptian military and things are very shaky and continue to be in Egypt, they have not moved toward democracy. One year ago today, we saw the brutal attack on our consulate in Benghazi. Four more Americans killed by terrorists there in Libya. We've yet to see any justice for that. And now the deadly drama playing out before us in Damascus, in Syria, threatening to embroil our country in a civil war that is worlds away from where we are here in America. A civil war that's pitting a brutal dictator, Bashar al-Assad, against, well, what one columnist quoted said, terrorists, foreign operatives, nihilists, jihadists, young men without work, and some nice guys. <laughs> How in the world did we get here to this point? Well, the Lord knew we would be. And He clearly stated it in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now that is a very specific prophecy for a very specific time, when indeed the nations of the world will be gathered all throughout the valley of Megiddo and in Israel against Jerusalem and against the Jewish people there at the end of the tribulation, Armageddon. However, 
the prophecy seems to be played out over and over and over on anyone who would attempt to lift the stone of Jerusalem. To toy with it or to divvy up the land. I think back to, it was right around 2004 that uh, President Bush was handily re-elected to the surprise of some. In 2003, prior to this, he had just opened up plans to do something about the Middle East mess, the roadmap to peace. Four years after his re-election, he left office following the disaster of Katrina. Our financial system in near collapse. I mean, we almost went completely under, which I still don't completely understand how that could take place. A very, very low popularity rating, which is really no big deal. But the thing is, what happened? When he left office, the roadmap to peace was in tatters. And it seems to me that things were going well until President Bush decided, I'm going to take hold of this Middle East mess and I'm going to pressure Israel to try and give up some more land for peace. And once that happened, everything else began to unravel around George W. Bush. Well, then Barack Obama took office. As a newly elected president, on his first day in office, he called up Hosni Mubarak, Ehud Omert, Mahmoud Abbas, and King Abdullah of Jordan. These four Middle Eastern leaders called him on day one, declaring that the Middle East peace would be an accomplishment of his administration. And he was determined (laughs) to work hard at this. This hasn't been such a good week for him. (laughs) Suddenly the man lauded as a great leader is struggling to get support from anyone. And I'm not joking around here. He took hold of something bigger than him. And I think if any American president would simply read Zechariah 2 verses 2 and 3, all they would do is support Israel and stand back. Now, the current issue obviously facing President Obama and our country is Damascus and is Syria. But even that is rooted in our relationship with Israel. It all comes back to Israel. The September 11th attacks were because of our support of Israel. Because we as a Western power are aligned with Israel. They're the little Satan, we're the great Satan. According to many uh, Muslim clerics in the Middle East. But the misinformation that is out there right now. And I'm not that smart a guy. But the misinformation and the lack of any cohesive historical understanding concerning Israel and the Middle East is quite frankly astounding to me. I think back to days when I didn't have a clue. When I really didn't know. When I didn't understand simply what the scriptures taught and and teach about what's going on. Senator John McCain. You know... (laughs) you're not elected a senator if you're an idiot although some say it helps (laughs) but John McCain claimed last week that the Islamist cry of Allahu Akbar is no different than a Christian saying thank God (laughs) Zola Levitt once wrote, a profound ignorance exists today concerning what is taking place in the land of Israel. If you believe the picture presented by the media, the Palestinians are cruelly oppressed and denied possession of their native land, which was stolen from them by an invading Israeli army. 
which is absolute propaganda, a complete lie that, that the world is buying. He says, those who subscribe to this view, however, either don't know or don't want to acknowledge the true history and significance of the current situation. So what's the deal? The root issue is buried, has been buried deep, some 4,000 years deep, in the mountains themselves. What are you talking about? Ezekiel 35 and 36 In these two chapters, the Lord compares the problem, compares the the region to two mountains who are at everlasting enmity. Two mountain ranges. Chapter 36. Chapter 36, the mountains of Israel. Chapter 35, Mount Seir. So the battle, the fight, the conflict, starting ages ago, is between the mountains of Israel and Mount Seir, And if you get this tonight, you will go home with a better understanding of why the mess is as as it is today. First, let's pray. Father, we, we know that you don't want us to be ignorant of these things. It's remarkable, Lord, that you give us your word. And that your word is so packed, Father, with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And yet, the majority of humanity never reads it. We are reading it tonight, and we are asking you, Lord, by your Spirit, to reveal to us the significance of these two chapters, so that we would not be misinformed. So we would know, Father, where we stand, where to stand, how to stand. So we would know, Father, what to pray really, Lord, so we could trust You more. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that You will lead us through this verse by verse and give us insight and understanding beyond what we had coming in the door tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Mount Seir, addressed in Ezekiel 35. The mountains of Israel in Ezekiel 36. But let's be very clear about who these mountains represent. The mountains of Israel are not, do not include Mount Carmel, Mount Tabor, Mount Gilboa, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, all mountains that we visit when we tour Israel. Many of them that surround the Jezreel Valley. And from any one of these mountains, you can look out and see across to the other mountains and it's it's breathtaking, it's beautiful. These are not the mountains of Israel. Mount Hermon, The largest peak in all of Israel is not included in the mountains of Israel, the list here of the mountains of Israel. The region referred to in Ezekiel 36 as the mountains of Israel, and you may want to jot this down, it's incredibly important, includes the following. Shechem, Shiloh, Bethel, Ai, Hebron, Bethany, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem. I'll tell you again. Shechem, Shiloh, Bethel, Ai, which is probably the easiest one to spell. Ai. Hebron, Bethany, and the last two you're probably most familiar with, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. 
In other words, to simplify it, the mountains of Israel, my friends, are Judea and Samaria. And if you were to look at a map of Israel today, many of you, if you can imagine Israel, it's a long strip. The mountains of Israel are a ridge that run right up the middle of that strip. They run just, well, to the west of the Jordan River. Judea and Samaria politically referred to as the West Bank. The mountains of Israel are the West Bank of Israel. Why is that so important? We'll get there. The world calls it the West Bank. I prefer to call it Judea and Samaria. Jews today will call it, refer to it as Judea and Samaria. It is all of the occupied territory occupied by Palestinians. Mount Seir in Ezekiel 35. Let's see what Mount Seir is all about. Verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Prophesy against it. And say to it, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir. And I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste your cities and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end. Now, throughout this chapter, God makes it clear that He is again against Mount Seir. I am against you. I am opposed to you. It's not a good place to be that is having the Lord set against you. But notice, first of all, that Ezekiel timestamps this prophecy very clearly for us so we can see what he's talking about or when he's talking about. He says there in verse 5, first of all, it's at the time of Israel's calamity. The time of Israel's calamity. Psalm 137, verse 7. Song of the exile in Babylon at one point says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. The prophet Obadiah, in the 11th verse of his single chapter book, said, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were one of them. Mount Seir is Edom. The Edomites, or partially so. This prophecy immediately was given following the calamitous fall of Jerusalem in which Edom played its part. This is a, some have compared it to Ezekiel 25, which we already read, where there is a judgment given against Edom, specifically. And here again, this is specifically the time of Israel's calamity. But note that, it's the time of Israel's calamity, it is not the time of Judah's calamity. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of that kingdom was Judah's fall, not Israel's. It was only a portion of the people of Israel. God is speaking of something much bigger. How do you know, Rick? Because He also says at the end of verse 5, it is the time of the punishment of the end. Bible students, what is the punishment of the end? There's a single word for it. The tribulation. It is the tribulation. The prophecy given here in Ezekiel 35 looks to a time yet future even to us here tonight. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says, Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, as I live, 
declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you. Since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. Four times he uses the word blood. It's translated in the NASV bloodshed, but it's just the word blood in Hebrew dom. He says it four times, and it is a wordplay on Edom. Four times he says, you have... You have been into Dom. You have, you have involved yourself with Dom. You have given yourself over to Dom. Therefore, Dom shall pursue you, Edom. The Lord is saying. Verse 7, I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation. I will cut off from it the one who passes through and returns. I will fill its mountains with its slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain by the sword will fall. I will make you an everlasting desolation and your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have said these two nations and these two lands will be mine and we will possess them. Although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against them. So I will make myself known among them when I judge you. There in verse 10, the two nations speaks of the divided kingdom of Israel. Two nations. Edom wanted them both. Israel falling in 722. Judah falling in 586. Originally, you know, one nation... Under Saul and then David and then Solomon, but after Solomon's death, the nation split. Rehoboam taking the southern half of the nation and Jeroboam taking the northern ten tribes. And so Edom sitting there on the sideline just waiting for their chance to take hold of both nations to seize them, to seize all the land of Israel for themselves. So this judgment against Mount Seir, against Edom is because of Edom's hateful envy. It's because of their hateful envy of Israel. James chapter 4, verse 1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Mount Seir is opposed to, fights against The mountains of Israel fights against the Jewish people because they wanted something that they could not have. They wanted something that was not theirs to take. Something that did not belong to them. Practical application. When we envy someone else, what they have, what we're in actuality doing is we're snubbing and spurning the blessings of God in our own lives. When I see someone else driving a better car or living in a better neighborhood, I can't say married to a better wife. (laughs) (laughs) Points. Um, When I see someone else with something that I want, something that I desire, I don't have a, man, I'd really like to have that. What I'm doing is saying, Lord, what you've given me really isn't good enough. I don't appreciate it, Father. I love what Jesus said at the end of the parable, Matthew 20, verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? The next time you see someone who has better than you or more than you or even something that that is attractive to your own eyes, praise the Lord that He blessed them. And then thank the Lord for His blessings in your life. 
I think that's the best counter to envy, is thankfulness. If you find yourself ever becoming envious in any way, be thankful. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving or thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, that was Edom's problem. Envy. Desire. They saw the land of Israel. They wanted the land of Israel for their own. Verse 12. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard your revilings, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate. They are given to us for food. And you have spoken arrogantly against me, and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard it. Thus says the Lord God, As all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, if this is an end times prophecy, which I believe it is, then who is the Edom that God is referring to here? Because if you know any of your history, in fact, if you've been with us through our study of Ezekiel so far, you know that Edom Edom got wiped out. There wasn't anything left of Edom really to consider. Some of you have been there. You've seen southern Jordan, Edom. It is a desolation. I read this and I thought, Lord, how are you going to make it more desolate than it already is? Mount Seir already seems to be punished. And the Edomites themselves, the actual people of Edom, also called the Edomians, were driven out. We talked about this a few weeks back. Driven out by the Nabataeans, the builders of Petra. And when they got driven out, those Edomians, those Edomites, moved down into the Negev of Israel, where they were conquered and converted to Judaism by John Hyrcanus. Thus, the end of all Edom. So how can they be referred to in a prophecy of the end times? Well, let's go back a little further. The Edomites are descendants of who? Esau. Jacob and Esau, the two brothers Esau born first. Jacob born grabbing onto his heel, therefore named heel catcher. Jacob means heel catcher. The firstborn would later serve the secondborn as Jacob would steal the birthright from Esau. And so their enmity, just as the two brothers went back a long way, an ancient hatred. Genesis 27, verse 41 tells us Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Jacob got wind of that and split. Jacob was a conniver. Jacob was not a good guy, by the way. He was a man who received a covenant from the Lord. He did have faith in the Lord, but he was also kind of a sneak, a schemer. So he took off and he got out of there. And eventually, as he made his way back to the land, some years later, he was told, your brother Esau is coming, and he was shaken in his boots. And in true Jacob fashion, first he sent all of his wives and children. Ahead of him. You know, kind of a buffer. What a stud. You know, while he stayed back in the tent and knitted, I don't know what he was doing. So he follows later. 
right? And, and, and Jacob and Esau meet up. And they have kind of an all-is-forgiven, pat-him-on-the-back kind of meeting. I can almost imagine it, big, hairy Esau. Oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, Jacob. And they go their separate ways. But it was not okay. And the bitterness and the hatred only grew in these two family groups down the genealogical line. Those of the line of Esau would always hate those of the line of Jacob. But Edom is not just the line of Esau. Turning your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 36. Keep your finger there in Ezekiel. Genesis 36. I want you to look at verse 8. Genesis 36, verse 8. It says, So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So in case there was any confusion on that, it's very clear. Verse 9, Then these are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada. And Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basemath. Base math. She was not the founder of beginner's algebra. <laughs> base math. Who is this base math? Go back to verse 1 of chapter 36. These are the records of the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elam the Hittite, and Oholabama, the daughter of Anah. <laughs> you guys just laugh at that. I know, I know. President Oholabama. <clears throat> the daughter of Anah and the granddaughter of Zabian the Hivite and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter. The sister of Nebaioth. And you could read on at your leisure. Genesis 28, verse 8 says, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahalat and the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So these two women of daughters of Ishmael. The line of these two groups, Esau and Ishmael, mixed and intermarried, get this, over 4,000 years. Where are they today? They are spread across a region spanning 5 million square miles of the Middle East and Northern Africa. We call them Arabs. So if you've ever wondered what the alignment was, where they all came from, there's Isaac, whose brother was Ishmael. The Arabs come from Ishmael. There is Jacob and Esau, the Jews coming from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on the other hand, you've got Ishmael and you have Esau. The Arabic people come from Ishmael and Esau. That's their heritage. And they would agree with that. They would tell you, well, yes, Ishmael is our father. Esau is our father. Ishmael's mother, Hagar, was from where? Egypt. And she went and got Ishmael, an Egyptian girl, to marry. So Egypt is in this as well. Which is how they got kind of... Because Egypt was not originally Arabic. But it has spread out now to the Arabic, what I call again, the Ishmael factor across the Middle East. And it's an important prophetic component to the Middle East madness that we see going on right now. Now, I'm going to speak of this in just a moment, but please understand I'm not being 
anti-Arabic. I'm not being racist toward Arabs, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But you need to understand what the Bible says about this genealogy, about this people that draw all the way back to Ishmael and Esau and have been married through for 4,000 years. Genesis 16.12, speaking of Ishmael, says he'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. Now, hear that and consider the history of the Arab tribes, which has been constant warring. Add to that, Genesis 25:18. They, the sons of Ishmael, settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. East of Egypt... So if this is Egypt here, east of Egypt is one goes up to Assyria and Israel's here. That's where they all settled. The Arab tribes and the nations surrounding Israel. And it says that he settled in defiance of all his relatives. This is an Arabic attitude. Not all Arabs, but it's definitely deep in the blood. What would happen, by the way, if you took Israel out of the picture? Which, you know, that's what the the nation surrounding Israel won. Let's just get Israel. There would not be a problem in the Middle East if there wasn't the presence of the Jews. Well, there wasn't the presence of the Jews for 1,900 years. How did it look then? Constant, warring, bloodshed, fighting, infighting. His hand was against his brothers. He settled in defiance. And Genesis 27, verse 40, speaking of the same group of people, by your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. Your brother being the Jew. And it's just galling to those Arabs who don't understand what God's plan is here. People say, well, that's just so unfair to the poor Arabs. Israel... They get so much and the Arabs get so little. Have you seen Israel? (laughs) Have you seen the rest of the Middle East? Tell me that God has not been just or fair to the Arabs? What was it? Um, Oh, what's her? uh, uh, gold, Gold in my ear. Remember what some of you have heard this comment that she said early on in the history of Israel. She said, you know, Moses led our people all around the Middle East and settled them in the one place with no oil. (laughs) although there may yet be by your sword you shall live your brother you shall serve force has always been the language of the Middle East which is why I believe our current administration is struggling with Syria because we do not know how to speak the language of force some of you would disagree with me and that's fine I understand that but the Arabic mindset does not understand the language that our president is using right now. Not sure he does. We don't understand the language of the Middle East. You either go in with force, full force, big force, or you don't go in. And I'm talking politically here, okay? Not spiritually. I'm not advocating bloodshed and violence. But I'm just saying there's a mindset that is misunderstood. It's a mindset that caused 9-11. Fairly speaking, no, it's not among all Arab people. No, of course not. But there is a mindset there that says we will wait as long as we have to wait. We've been in the land for thousands of years, so waiting is not a big deal. And we will do whatever we have to do. 
Even if that says we'll be at peace with you until we're strong enough to take you down. Well, that was Muhammad's belief. That's what he taught, the Quraysh principle of Muhammad. Make peace with your enemies until you're strong enough to wipe them out. (laughs) Nice treaty. Turn over to Psalm 83. A little more information. Psalm 83. About in the middle of your Bibles, just a little bit to the left of Ezekiel. Psalm 83, we get more of a description of all of Edom. As you'll hear referred to several times in Ezekiel 35 and 36, we've already heard it once, you'll hear it a couple more times. Edom and all the surrounding nations, or all Edom. And he's very specific, not just to say Edom, but to say all of Edom. There's a very inclusive picture here. Watch it, Psalm 83. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones or your hidden ones. They have said, Come, and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant. Who does? The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Moab and the Hagrites were talking about the Arabs. Gabal and Ammon and Amalek were talking about there. Jordan. Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. That's Gaza is Philistia. And the inhabitants of Tyre, Lebanon. Assyria has also joined with them, Syria today. And they have become literally an arm or a help to the children of Lot. And the children of Lot may very well be the Palestinians. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, which is not a planet with cute fuzzy animals, who became as dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zabah and Zalmunna, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. See, that's the deal. That's the issue. That's why there's such vehement hatred against Israel. The surrounding nations are saying, we want this land. But you don't have enough. And we want this land. It's not that we want a two-state solution. They already got that. We want this land for ourselves. The land of the Lord. So who is the end times judgment of Ezekiel 35 and 36 against? It is against the self-described enemies of Israel. Okay, So I'm not saying it's against the Arabs, because not all Arabs are opposed to Israel. It's against those who describe themselves, who accept that they are enemies of Israel. It's against those who occupy the mountains of Israel today. Gang, the Jewish people are not the occupiers. The Palestinians are the occupiers. They are occupying God's land, the mountains of Israel. But before I go any further with this, hear me clearly. I have, you have, we have beloved brothers and sisters in the Arab world who love Jesus, who recognize what the Word says about His people Israel, 
good, faithful Christian brothers and sisters who are Arabs. we got to be careful when we read and study this stuff not to just come off on the side of the Jew and oppose the Arab. You know what? The, Jews can be jerks. So can Arabs. So can Americans. Amen. We can all be idiots. None of us are perfect. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Amen. So the issue is, where do you stand with the Lord? Are you beloved of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, then Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. You're in the church. And so we have that right now. People, brothers and sisters, Arabs who were born, John 1.13 tells us, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And we've got to keep that in mind when we travel over there, when we talk about what's going on in the Middle East, when we pray for the people over there. The love call of the Gospel is for everyone, for anyone who will call on the name of the Lord to be saved, Romans 10.13. So I do not want to encourage the fomenting of anti-Arab racism here. Just delineate who we're talking about. Go back to Ezekiel 35 and 36. We are talking about the enemies of Israel. Enemies in the surrounding nations. Enemies who are occupying the land called the mountains of Israel, which does not belong to anybody but the Jewish people. Ricky, you've said that a couple times. How can you say that? Because God says that. Because the Word of God declares it. It's not my determination. It's the Lord's determination. By the way, there are enemies of Israel who are corn-fed Americans too who stand against Israel, I would include them in this judgment. By the way, um, side note, in fact, we got to pause to pray real quickly. I want to read you something. There are Christian Arabs in Syria right now who are facing dire persecution. Not by the Assad government, but by the rebels who we are supporting as a country. Rebels of, let me just read this to you. Jeff Shelton for uh, Bridges for Peace wrote the following. The village of Ma'alula has been taken over by Syrian rebels associated with Al-Qaeda who have stormed the Christian center and offered local Christians a choice, conversion or death. A resident of the town said the rebels shouted, Allahu Akbar! Or, thank God. <laughs> As they moved through the village and proceeded to assault Christian homes and churches, they shot and killed people, he said. I heard gunshots, then I saw three bodies lying in the middle of a street in the old quarters of the village. Where is President Obama to see what has befallen us? Another witness stated, I saw the militants grabbing five villagers and threatening them and saying, either you convert to Islam or you will be beheaded. The village is located just 25 miles from Damascus and sites within the village are dedicated as United Nations World Heritage Sites. Where's the UN? Residents still speak Aramaic, the language of Jesus. The rebels who took over the city are associated with the Al-Nusra Front, an Al-Qaeda-linked Islamist group. Villagers reported foreign dialects ranging from Tunisian to Libyan, Moroccan to Chechen. Or Chechen. Yeah. So, Chechen. There we go. So, the Ezekiel 35 judgment here against Mount Seir refers to those who oppose Israel and those who occupy their land which is the mountains of Israel. Chapter 36. The Lord turns His attention to the mountains of Israel. Let me remind you, for those of you who may have missed it the first time, Shechem, Shiloh, Bethel, Ai, Hebron, Bethany, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem. These are the mountains of Israel running as a ridge right up the middle, the west bank. 
that is occupied, who are the occupiers? Verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has spoken against you. Aha! And said, the everlasting heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God. For good reason they have made you desolate and crushed you from every side, that you have become a possession of the rest of the nations, and you have been taken up in the talk and the whispering of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the ravines and to the valleys and to the desolate wastes and to the foreign cities which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations which are round about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations, against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. Gang, the Palestinian territories is exactly what he's talking about here. Land that God says is mine, this is my land for my people, but you have come in and have appropriated it. And I don't know if it does this to you, but when I look at maps of Israel today and I see that carved out section of the so-called West Bank of the mountains of Israel, and the maps show that as Palestine, man, that just burns me up. I really wonder how it makes the Lord feel to look down from on high and see that division of His land, His mountains, that He gave to His people, and is now, as the Word says, verse 5, appropriated by all Edom and the nations round about. The nations round about? Lebanon, Syria, Jordan. Iraq would be part of that as well. Swinging down to the south Egypt, Gaza. The nations round about. He says in verse 6, Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath because you have endured the insults of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. Now I remind you, this is not Pastor Rick coming up with this stuff. We're just reading Scripture here. This is what the Word of the Lord declares. Now remember, the judgment of chapter 35 was because of Edom's hateful envy of Jerusalem. But now it goes from envy to appropriation. To Edom and the surrounding nations taking Israel's land for themselves. Saying this is an everlasting homeland. It's been ours from time immemorial. That's the Palestinian claim. The claim of the Arabs in that region, we've always been here, this has belonged to us forever, it's those Jewish usurpers who came into the land and tried to take it from us. And it's an absolute lie that flips history upside down. In fact, it completely rearranges it from what actually is taking place before our very eyes. These appropriating nations round about Israel are the same ones we've been talking about, the Arab nations. And yet the world continues to push for a two-state solution appropriating the mountains of Israel for the very enemies of the Jewish state. What about the two-state solution? Now let's go back in history a little bit. The two-state solution that everybody's talking about today. 
And I've said before, there's already been a two-state solution. And the two-state solution was handed down in the United Nations in 1948, and Israel accepted it. Actually, no, it was earlier than that. Earlier than that, in the British White Paper, how much of this do I want to tell you right now? All of it. We go back to 1917 and the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration, Britain maintained, had what was called the British Mandate, which was over the entire land. Okay, not the whole Middle East, but all of what you can, what was considered before Palestine. It was just called Palestine. In fact, for 400 years, the Ottoman Turks owned that whole area until 1917, is it the fall of the um, end of World War One? Is that right, Jim? Check my dates here. So at the end of 1917, World War One happens, ends, and the Ottoman Turks sided with Germany, oops, and lost. So they lost the land. It was divvied up between France and Great Britain. Great Britain got what was called Palestine for many centuries. Palestine included all of what is Jordan today and Israel today. So that whole big chunk. Lord Balfour comes along after that, and he stated in a written declaration, Secretary of State for Great Britain, told Chaim Wiseman, who's he, look it up, um, told him, we're going to give this land as a homeland for the Jew. Do you know why? A couple of reasons. One, the Jews fought on the side of Great Britain in World War I. But a greater reason remained. There had always been, for 3,700 years, a Jewish presence in the land. It is a lie to say that all the Jews were driven out. They were never all driven out. There was all, in fact, there were four regions within Palestine where the Jews resided and have resided from time immemorial. Back when there was no such thing as a Palestinian people, there were just Jews and Arabs that lived in this region called Palestine. You Bible students know why it's called Palestine, right? I mean, we've got to go all the way back to 135 when Emperor Hadrian of Rome renamed it Palestine to slap the Jews in the face. It wasn't a, a people group. It was a mean name, Palestina, Philistine country. So this land that was called Palestine, and the Ottoman Turks, when they took it over, when they ruled it, they just kept calling it Palestine, and it was a backwater land, a region. It was in horrible misuse. There were always Jews living there, always a Jewish presence. In fact, the largest population of people in Jerusalem in the 1800s were Jews. So when Lord Balfour saw this, he said, you know what, we're going to give this to the people of Israel as a Jewish homeland. Winston Churchill did a lot of good things in his life, but he did some stupid things too. And one of them was because there was such an Arab outcry against the Jews receiving all of then Palestine... He said, well, we'll divide it up. We'll just cut it. We'll cut it right along the Jordan River and to the east of the Jordan we'll give to the Arabs and to the west of the Jordan we'll give to the Jews your two-state solution. An Arab state and a Jewish state. And that was the whole plan. Then they came to the Jewish people and said, we're going to carve out less for you, actually. We need to give more to those Arabs who are still in the land that is now to the, to the west of the Jordan River. So we're going to carve that up some more. The Jews accepted it. Gladly. A tiny little piece of land. Eight miles wide at one point. The Arabs said, no, they rejected it. They walked out of the UN. Israel declared independence, and the Arabs declared war. 
The day after the Declaration of Independence was signed and ratified in Israel, five Arab countries came against Israel to destroy it and wipe it off the planet and be done with the whole thing. The War of Independence. It ended with Israel victorious. And they held their land. Miraculously. And now I don't even know where I am. Well, so, okay, so back to that two-state solution. Britain came up with that two-state solution and of British-ruled Palestine, listen, 77% of it was given to the Arabs for Jordan. 77%. And the Jews got 23%. They ended up with Israel. Today in the Middle East, for those who think that it's not fair that the Jews have Israel, Today, the Arabs have Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Bahrain, Qatar, the UAE, Oman, Yemen, Tunisia, Egypt, Syria, Morocco, Iraq, Libya, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Sudan, not to mention Turkey, which is Muslim-controlled now, and Iran, Persia, which is vehemently anti-Israel. All of that. And Israel inhabits not 5% of the Middle East, but 0.5%. Actually, less than that, less than 0.5% of the entire Middle East is Israel. You could fit several Israels in the state of California. It's roughly the size, actually it's smaller than the county of San Bernardino in California. About the size, perhaps, of New Jersey, if you kind of squashed New Jersey and, stri- and lengthened it a bit. You know? In verse 7, God says, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. Their own insults are going to come back on them. He says, I have sworn. Literally, I have lifted up my hand. If you can imagine for a moment the severity of this, the Lord lifts His hand and says, in a solemn promise, I am going to turn the insults of these nations onto themselves. Verse 8. And there's more to come as as my mind can wrap myself back around where we are. But you, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. What a great verse. There was a time not long ago when that seemed absolutely impossible. Both the return of the Jews, but also the branches bearing fruit in Judea and Samaria. Because Judea and Samaria became an absolute trashed wasteland from 1517 to 1917. Now again, I mentioned the Ottoman Turks. They ruled the area for 400 years. Listen to this. During that time, during that time of Ottoman rule, they never once established... As a province, they had several provincial centers because the land was just too big. It wasn't a country. It was just a landmass that was controlled by the Ottomans, by the Turks. And so they set up provincial uh, city centers there. If you needed uh, help, if you needed to go to the government for something, whatever, you could go to those centers to, to reach the government of the Ottomans. The closest one in the region that is called Palestine was in Damascus. In 400 years, they never once set up a city center in Jerusalem. Why? Because it didn't matter to them. Because Jerusalem was nothing to them. Because it's not listed anywhere, mentioned even a single time in the Quran. Muhammad never talked about it, didn't care about it. Well, how did it become part of the deal? Okay, here's one more thing that's not in my notes, but... (laughs) 
a Muslim who was kicked out of Mecca and Medina went to Jerusalem and built Dome of the Rock. Built it there in Jerusalem to attract, to draw dollars. If he was going to you know, gather an army around him, he needed money. How do you do that? Tourist attraction. And he began telling the Muslims, you know in that passage in the Quran where it says that Muhammad went on the long ride, the midnight ride, he went and he tied up his horse and flew up to heaven? It's right here. It's Jerusalem. The Quran says Muhammad went to a far off place. That's all it says. The Ottoman Turks ruled it 400 years. During that time, you may have heard of the infamous tree tax. If you want to decimate the trees in the northwest, put a tax on them. Every tree in your yard, you owe the government a certain amount of money, percentage, based on you know number of trees. What would you do? <laughs> we would be a treeless plot right over here. And that's what happened. The Ottomans said, we're putting a tree tax in Palestine, and people started cutting down trees. It got so bad that at one point there were less than a thousand trees in the entire region. And when you take away trees, the environment changes. Things begin to die off and dry up and become desolate, and the land was absolutely desolate. But from 1906 up to 1990, Jewish settlers and visitors coming into Israel planted 256 million trees in Israel. There are forests in Israel again. That's remarkable to me. And those trees weren't just like pine trees, you know. They weren't trees that you just throw on the ground. And, I mean, there were orange, oranges, lemons, grapes, apples, grapefruits, pomelos in the Sharon Valley along the coastal plain. There. In the Jordan Valley, bananas, dates, figs, even kiwi. And it's making me hungry. And what did the Lord promise? Look at verse 9. After saying you will put forth your branches, you will bear fruit for my people Israel, for they soon will come. He says in verse 9, Behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. Who's he talking to? The mountains of Israel. He's talking to the West Bank. I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel. All of it. And the cities will be inhabited. And the waste places will be rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast. They will increase and be fruitful. I will cause you to be inhabited as you formerly were and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. You know what that means? That means Israel is not going to return to its glory days. It's going to have better than their best. The glory days of Israel past will pale in comparison to what God has in store for the mountains of Israel to come. And by the way, the fruitfulness of the country round about is incontrovertible proof positive that God's hand is on Israel today. I mean, it's one of those things you don't even have to discuss. Just look with your eyes. Is this happening? Has He, first of all, brought people back? But are the branches putting forth fruit? It's astounding. The amount of fruit that is coming out of that tiny postage stamp country. It's remarkable. Isaiah 35 verse 1, the prophet said, The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I said on Sunday, Israel is the only country that is driving back the deserts in favor of farmland. They are turning deserts into farmland. 
Isaiah 35, verse 6, The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, which is a reference to Jesus and His healing. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes, and it's happening. And you don't have to try and base it with some other kind of evidence. Just look with your eyes at what's happening in the land of Israel today. What God prophesied is taking place. And in 1967, something else happened. Look at verse 12. Yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, to walk on you and possess you, so that you will again, so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. He's talking to the mountains of Israel, and over that six day war in 1967, when all the Arab nations round about, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq, supported by nine other Arab countries, banded together to destroy Israel once and for all, the reverse happened. And for the first time in 1897 years, the Jewish people took hold of the mountains of Israel. Jerusalem. The first time in 1900 years, nearly, that the Jewish people now had sovereign control over Jerusalem. Do you see why maybe... uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu does not want to release or relinquish any control of Jerusalem. Palestinians are saying East Jerusalem must be ours for the Palestinian state. Why? Because it's the mountains of Israel. And they would appropriate it and possess it. God says no more. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I don't believe Israel is going to ever be completely driven out again of the mountains of Israel. Why? Because once they begin to take it, as they already have, once they begin to come back into the land, they are fulfilling prophecy, and I think it's sound, and I don't think you're going to see a reverse. Well, that means, what, like we're here now? Yeah, exactly. Blood moons and all. Verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you are a devourer of men and have bereaved your nation of children, therefore you will no longer devour men and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord. Again, he's talking to the mountains of Israel, Judea and Samaria, which through war, famine, beasts, and pestilence devoured men and bereaved the Israelis, the Jewish people, of their children. Not anymore. Not anymore. The Lord promises that what is coming to Judea and Samaria, what is coming to the mountains of Israel, is a permanent peace. A day, gang, when the everlasting enmity will be replaced by an enduring tranquility. Verse 15. I will not let you hear insults from the nations anymore, nor will you bear disgrace from the peoples any longer, nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer, declares the Lord God. They're not going to hear the insults. They still are. That's part and parcel of politics today. The mountains of Israel have heard it all, the spiteful, bitter talk at the tables of the Palestinian Authority. They've heard the rejoicing in the streets among Islamists at any Israeli catastrophe... Rejoicing especially if there's a terrorist attack that manages to get into the land. 
and raging at any success that the Jews in Israel might have. Why this everlasting enmity? Because the enemy hates Israel. And I'm not talking about Arabs. I'm talking about Satan. Here's the bottom line. Satan is doing everything possible to stop the promised peace. Everything he can. He already failed once to stop the coming of the Prince of Peace. He tried hard. And he tried for thousands of years to stop the coming of Messiah. And I could go over so much on that, I'm not going to tonight. But going all the way back literally to Cain and Abel. Satan was already at work trying to kill off the possible bloodline of a future Savior. All the way down to present time. Well, Jesus came. He missed that one. Born in Bethlehem, just as prophecy said He would be. Where was Satan at that time? Missed it. Tried to stop it. He failed again and again, even in the crucifixion. He failed to stop the wonderful coming of Messiah, Jesus rose again. So now, if he can annihilate Israel, he can thwart the Prince of Peace in his second coming because the Prince of Peace comes to be a king over his people Israel. So wipe out Israel and you wipe out the prophetic plans of God. Destroy Israel and you can say, see, God doesn't know what he's talking about. Satan is the one who's misinformed. He's the one who does not understand what we have said so many times in here, and that is prophecy is not what God hopes will happen. It's not what He's trying to make happen. It is what He has seen happen. God, outside of time and space, has already looked down and seen this is what's going to happen. I'm just telling you what I've already accomplished. You're just here at this point in the parade route, but I'm up there in the Goodyear blimp, and I see the whole thing all happening at once. And this is what's coming around the next corner. It will happen. I guarantee it will. Romans 11.25, the Lord says through the Apostle Paul, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And he says in verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. Why, Lord? Because, he says in verse 29, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. What does that say about your salvation? Can you screw it up? The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. So deep is His love, so great His passion for you. You're not smart enough to mess it up. Irrevocable. And the enemy has already lost. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 9-7, is going to bring about both the kingdom and the redemption of Israel. And we're going to see that through the rest. We actually already saw the redemption of Israel through the rest of the study of chapter 36, which we did on Sunday. And if you haven't heard that, you might want to go back and listen. Because from verse 16 all the way to the end of the chapter, God lays out the plan of redemption involving gathering the people, cleansing His people, giving His people a new heart, filling that new heart with His own Spirit, drawing them back into the new kingdom. This is all the plan of redemption. But let me ask you this one thing. We're going to stop here for tonight. When does the Lord redeem Israel? Before or after they are back in the land? 
When does it happen? When does He redeem Israel? Before they come back into the land or after they're in the land? After. After. That's contrary to my way of thinking. I'd say clean them up before you bring them home. <laughs> David, Naomi, you got to clean off your little bodies before you bring that stuff into the house. Okay, they have this thing that they love to do, David and Naomi, this summer they really got into it. We have this little pool and this little sandbox side by side. Probably was a bad idea on our part. They like to mix the sand and the water in both. So they've got the big mud baths. We look out there, they are covered head to toe. They don't look a lot different, but they look, you know, somewhat... <laughs> look out there, you see mud and smiles. It's, it's hysterical. And so we got to hose them off before we bring them into the house. Cleanse them first, then they can have the land. That's not God's way. God says, come on. I want to gather you first. Now, brothers and sisters, that's what He does with church too. Do not look for clean people to walk in the door. We've got to look for messy people, muddy people, people who might not even know what they're doing to come walking in with lives completely out of control and messed up. Gather first, redeem second. And that's what God does with Israel. He brings them back into the land first. And then He begins the plan of redemption. You see what I'm saying here? We are in Ezekiel 36 right now. We are in this point in history, the gathering of the Jewish people. The full redemption hasn't yet taken place, but He's gathering them. Israel is a secular nation. It is not a believing nation right now. All you got to do is visit it to see that. Spend a night in Tel Aviv, you see that. But He's gathering. And He's drawing. And the, and the gathering of the Jewish people from all over the world in the last, the last generation has been Unbelievable. And I share with you, we've just reached now, in the land of Israel, they've crossed over the number of Jews lost in the Holocaust. Over 6 million Jews living in Israel now. And they continue to flood into the land. We are in Ezekiel 36. Listen again. I'm just going to read this to you, so just listen to it. To what the Lord says to the mountains of Israel in Ezekiel 36. In verse 7 he says, I have lifted up my hand in an oath. In verse 9 he says, I will turn to you. Verse 10, I will multiply men on you. Verse 11, I will make you fruitful and inhabited. Verse 12, I will cause my people Israel to walk on you and possess you. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Verse 24, I will gather you. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. Verse 28, I will be your God. Verse 29, I will save you. I will call for the grain. Verse 30, I will multiply the fruit of the field and the produce. Verse 33, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. Verse 37, I will increase their men like a flock. And back in verse 36, I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Who's going to make all this come to be? I will, says the Lord. Eighteen times in Ezekiel 36, He says, I will do it. I will, I will, I will. 18, by the way, in the Bible, the number 18 is a lot. (laughs) And behind every single one of these I wills is the great I am. 
Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous uh, truth to lay before us and for You to show us tonight. And I pray that we will have insight and understanding. Even as we watch the news, as we see what's going on, that, Lord, we don't walk around in the dark. That we are not ignorant and misinformed. Father, I pray when conversations happen between us with friends and and non-believers and those even who stand opposed to Israel, that we would be an informed people. That we know the history of the land and we know what Your Word says. And we understand these things and can articulate them. Because Lord, as You said, Your Word stands. You have said it. You will do it. And we believe that, Father. And all of this, Lord, all of this goes to the glory of Your great name. You are an awesome God. You are the only God. And Your Word alone stands. We praise You. We bless Your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to roll on Sunday morning with Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones. These are the days of Ezekiel, gang. God bless you all.